What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Deal Maven podcast. Today, we are going to talk about getting your first deal done. This is probably the question that I get the most frequently. A lot of times it's from people that are working a job that know they want to be an entrepreneur. Just the risk of starting something from scratch is too high for them to take. They have high opportunity costs. They're getting priced out of just starting something from the very beginning again. And so they want to acquire something to move into the next opportunity, but there's this like knowledge gap of how do I take it? How do I start allocating enough time in order to really find something that I like while also keeping my job? So I brought Mubarak back and who's also done some acquisitions of his own and works helping people do these acquisitions. So for you, as someone who works, but has also done an acquisition, how did you think about that? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing to realize is that with internet businesses and online digital assets, it actually is possible in today's world to do that, right? So I think that's a massive blessing and situation that people of maybe potential older, older generation also like don't think about. You can run a successful business and not be on call 24-7. Like, yes, even with customer support, if you recognize even with probably popular softwares you use on a day-to-day basis. I mean, this is not the best example, but Google, for example, you can't get anyone on the phone or email there, right? But even smaller businesses, like you submit a ticket or you send an email and you get a response back. So that barrier was super significant that you mentioned. And I hear a lot of people have that too, in terms of, oh, hey, I'm working a full-time job. So they just completely disregard even the ability to do something like another business or purchase another revenue stream or things like that. But that's definitely something that can be negated that I got exposure to a little early on because I had, you know, my first business was an internet business. And I think for more people that are getting into entrepreneurship, I think that mantra of what is it, Tim Ferriss with a four hour work week and setting up that type of business is Hopefully, I feel like a lot of first-time entrepreneurs end up coming through like reading something like that or Rich Dad, Poor Dad or something. That's like the catalyst. What was it for you, actually? Like what was like the catalyst for you to, outside of maybe not liking your job, what was the potential idea that acquisitions could be the opportunity rather than switching careers or switching jobs or something like that? Yeah, for me, it was more of a process of elimination. I looked at potentially switching from law to consulting and I started looking at consulting stuff. I tried to start stuff from scratch. It seemed like the energy and the consistency required to start it from scratch, like the job of practicing law, at least doing transactional work, you're always getting this urgent stuff that's happening in capital markets and doing a new debt offering or whatever. And so the urgency of the job seemed to always trump the important things of trying to do my side hustle i tried to start too mentally taxing right yeah and like there's like massive switching costs like in your mind of going from like what should i post on instagram today like in my side hustle that i hope nobody at my job (laughs) sees yeah then getting an inbound email from a partner of where are we at on this project right and you're like constantly trying to burn the candle on both ends and getting burnt out for me individually, I needed to kind of go all in into something and it needed to be something that had a high chance of success because I'd worked at a venture fund when I was in law school. And so I had seen so many people have great ideas and great entrepreneurial kind of pitch decks that didn't work. 
And so I wanted something that was at a later stage. And then it was just a matter of finding what that was, finding what the right opportunity was. Yeah, yeah. No, and I would agree that for anybody who has a job that probably requires more than 40 hours a week, like, yes, 40 hours, maybe you're nine to five, but it's a little bit mentally taxing or in today's environment also, like you're pretty much not required to be on call, but I think a lot of people have that expectation of like, okay, they go on their laptop after dinner and knock out some more hours or kind of log on on the weekends and stuff. And so I think starting a company and starting a business becomes too difficult for that because there's so much initial inertia and momentum that you need to get something off the ground to be motivating enough because any startup would take at least six to 12 months to get anywhere real, if not more. You know, if you're building a software or building a hardware, you can kind of triple that because that's the building phase is also a year or two. So I definitely agree with you there. And so what is kind of the go-to advice or the initial kind of place people should think about when they know either through Rich Dad, Poor Dad, through online education, through just a mentor, they know that like entrepreneurship and owning equity in a business is the right move for wealth, right? They know that that is what they should do. They have no idea how to do it though. What's like the first step? I, I think the first step is to start putting feelers out there and start talking about it with people that you know, that you feel like is a safe place to talk about. I made the mistake at my law firm job of telling associates and senior <laughs> associates. Okay. So maybe don't tell your coworkers that you're about to, but yeah. what did you tell them? Do you tell them you're building a company to dip? Was it just like, I think I was trying to find validation in not feeling like the only one that felt like the emperor had no clothes of like, yo, practicing law sucks. Yeah. And I would try to confide in them. Think about how much better it'd be to like own a business and be an entrepreneur and trying to understand whether I was the only one that thought that or not. And it turned out that I kind of was the only one that really? thought that. You think they were just trying to be politically correct and not get fired? Or you think that attracts that personality of people who just don't even, because I guess lawyers want the most minimized risk ever, right? And so a business, they only just see the bad side of business. So it's like, why would I expose myself to that? I think law particularly, the majority of them wanted the least amount of risk possible. And they went to law school because they thought that they would enjoy practicing law. And I don't think it was them being conniving because I was a first year associate. Like there was nothing that I could really do. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they would be pretty honest with you in terms of how they I felt. Think, I think the majority of them. What would they say? How would they respond or react? You know, they would say the typical things that family members would say of like, well, you know, owning a business has a lot of risk. And I know somebody that lost everything. Just all the horror stories. Basically. It's scarier than you think that it is. And we make good money without having to take any risk. And all of the trite things, all of the trite downsides about being an entrepreneur. But are they open about, for example, CPAs or at least accountants, public accountants, like we'll complain about our job 24 seven, you know? And yeah, I think it's like, it's a known fear of like, Hey, I couldn't do that, you know, for most accountants. I um, do think like my wife would tell you that I'm like very allergic to complaining. And so when somebody at my law firm would say, I can't believe that we're doing these kind of hours, I'm like 
Yo, I totally agree. So what are our options? Should we do consulting or should we quit? Whereas they're just or... razzing. They're just venting. Yeah, they're just vent, they're just trying to let off some steam. And I'm like, yo, I agree. So here's what I'm thinking. Here's how I think that we could beat this. You know what I mean? And, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I can see the desire to want to do that. That definitely makes sense. Like I was doing the same thing, but with my friends in school, but never at work. But I do always get the inclination... I always think about maybe I would want to pull this person and do something with them, you know, yeah. like a JV or partnership or business idea. But right. yeah, no, I feel you. I guess, so, it, yeah, especially in person, it would have been more different. You know, now in the remote world, it's like. Different. So what happened with me at my law firm, which wasn't great, was like word got out that I didn't like <laughs> trying to start a business. <laughs> That's hilarious. Wow. And so like I had partners ask me about it. it. I think it was pretty clear from the beginning that I was kind of square peg round hole, whatever that saying is, yeah, because yeah. I started in a restructuring practice and then I asked to move to mergers and acquisitions, capital markets practice. And then I asked to move to real estate practice. And it's not typical at the firm that I was at to change practices ever. And I had changed practices three times. And what it, was it? Just because you were bored, you didn't like the work, you thought it was too much? I didn't like the work. Okay. I think when I was in restructuring, I realized that restructuring was more litigation than I wanted to do. Then when I moved to mergers and acquisitions, capital markets, my first project was doing an S1 for a company that was in the process of going public. And so I had to go to the printer which is like where they reformat and do all of this formatting stuff for a business to go public. So I was at the printer for a week and I hated it. And I think I kept wanting to find a partner or a senior associate that was similar minded to me. I think I really wanted to find something that I'm learning great stuff that can help me in my entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. Right. And doing an S1 didn't feel like practical stuff. And so I kind of landed on this idea of real estate being more practical in how I would be learning something applicable to what I would ultimately do one day. Yeah. yeah. But it was too big. It was too like billion dollar deals. Yeah. And it just, to me, I kind of got to the point where I just didn't see anybody ahead of me that was like, I want to have the life that they have. I felt like I... And just more work, the higher you go up, the more miserable. Yeah. yeah I felt like... I would be better off. I would learn more by just doing the thing that I want to do as opposed to like this parallel track of, well, I hate what I'm doing, but hopefully it's good training for the thing that I ultimately want to do like that. Like, And then how did you actually leave? Like, you, did you start a side business and get things going or did you just say after one day, did you get laid off? Did, what, what happened? <laughs> so I quit. I found a group of guys that had a trampoline park business and were in the process of starting an escape room business in the and company or externally it, i found them externally like not in the law firm business at all yeah. and so how, how would you recommend people doing that is it like meetups is it online like how do you find a group or how do you get even known to be that individual that is looking to do something in business so this was in 2015 where online was not as much of a thing as it is now. I did it through meetups back then. Part of the reason why I built Deal Maven the way that I did was to have a place, you know, a lot of times working professionals, people that are searching for a business to acquire, they can't put that on LinkedIn. 
yo, looking for this next yeah. business. They have a job. And so Deal Maven is a place for you to put what your acquisition criteria is, what your experience looks yeah. like, and connect with other people that are also looking for acquisitions for deal scouts to help you find the deals that are interesting, right? I kind of built deal Maven on the Maven side of the platform as a solution to solve some of the problems that what I do you had. Mean by Maven side. So Mavens is what we call the buyers, acquirers, people that are out there proactively looking for businesses to buy um, okay. is the buyer side of deal Maven. And so I think that's one additional way that you can generate deals and start talking to people that have businesses that are potentially interested in selling. Unfortunately, it's a human to human process of you Getting know, talking. Yeah. You have to talk to people, whether that's online through messaging and building profiles and connecting that way, or going to meetups and conferences, do the thing that feels the most comfortable for you. That's still forward progress, forward action. I personally am not a big conference guy. I don't love going to those things. Other people love them. And so do the thing that feels comfortable to you based on where you're at, that still is you moving forward. Okay. That makes sense. And then how do you find an actual potential business to buy? You said you entered the trampoline park or escape room world. You didn't have a background in that, right? That was like, no. how did you know it was a good investment or like why choose that business? Like to me, it felt good. It felt like a risk that didn't seem massive at the time, knowing that I didn't like my job. I never did like this proactive outbound strategy of really hitting a bunch of people up. It seemed like an opportunity that made sense to me. Did you have a kid that went to an escape room or? I read an article on Market Watch that escape rooms were crushing it. And so I looked up escape rooms in my area like Dallas, Texas, that's where I was practicing law, Dallas, Texas escape rooms. There were four escape rooms there and escape rooms at the time were an online booking process. And so I would go onto the website of each of them every single day. I had a little Excel spreadsheet and I would see how many bookings they would have for the day in Dallas. Okay. Like this escape room is making $1,500 oh, a day. Because, Why, because like they had slots booked or they reported slots it on booked. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> slots booked. That's pretty genius. I like that. <laughs> and so then I could see what they were doing in revenue in Dallas. And there was a location that was available in Utah. And I was like, yo, these things are making like a million bucks a year. And it doesn't look like they're doing a ton of marketing. And then I went to every single one of their rooms and I would price out like, okay, they had a dresser and they had padlocks and okay, they had this mag lock on a door. How did they make that door open when I did this thing over here? Like, how do you Okay, do so you did some market research and you went into it. So you had this thesis, you had like, hey, I want to maybe do escape rooms. How much time did you spend? Tell me like in a day or like in a week and then also like over how long of a period of time? Are you doing like research um, to understand this? Once I kind of zeroed in on the opportunity, this was four or five opportunities in, I tried to do a senior home care center, right? There were a couple other things that I tried in this escape. Okay. Room. So the first decision to make was I want to buy a business and I want to escape. This was already when you left the job or you, were you still working? I was still working. Okay. I was still trying to figure so this out. Is I was like, I got to get out of this thing. thing. Yeah. I don't know how I'm getting out, but I got to get out. Like I got my real yeah. estate license. Right. Okay. I'm going to be a real estate agent. And then I met with three brokers and I was like, nope, I hate that. But I like got the license <laughs> and I did everything. Right. And then I was That's like, funny. I did my real estate license too, actually in New York. You did? 
Yeah, yeah. But that was because I was like on a, that was a whole other reason. It was right after my CPA exam. And actually you did the bar exam. It was right after my bar exam. And I was like, I can't be a lawyer. Maybe I'll be a realtor. (laughs) (laughs) So I did have that thesis, but I had the thesis that I felt like right after my CPA exam was the smartest I ever was like mentally. Like, I don't know if it's like that for the bar exam or the LSAT. I imagine it is, but it's very challenging, stimulating questions. Like it's exhausting and it's very high level. So I was like peak intelligence, like for me to do a test, I felt like a real estate test was like super quick. And plus at that time, I think my dad was looking to sell his house and my brother was looking to buy. So I got some quick like commission fixes on that too. Yeah. Um, as the buyers and agent and sellers agents. So that was pretty easy, but sorry, continue. So you knew you had to leave. You started testing out other businesses and what qualified them as like a bad business? Like why didn't you do the senior home care one? The senior home care one, I was going to have two other partners in that. One of them was going to moved to Dallas to run it and the partnership. And how'd you find it in Dallas? Like just Googled it. You knew somebody who had one. I was going to buy a house and turn it into a senior home care. Like I was going to an old (laughs) one story house and like studied all the regulations to turn a single family home into a senior home facility. I was like, we can get nine beds in here. As long as we're under 10 beds, we don't have to do fire sprinklers in the house and like nine beds at 4,500 a month, like, you know, we can make, uh, <laughs> we can make 40 grand a month on this house. Like the mortgage is going to be this. And like, I had a buddy that was graduating law school a year after me and his wife was a registered nurse. And so they were going to move and he didn't have a job lined up yet for what he wanted to do after law school. And so the three, me and these two other lawyers, but neither one of them wanted to go practice law. And okay. So I you went, had at least a mini network, a few friends. Yeah, were also I, on the same always. Team. And then I had a CPA friend that was working at KPMG and he hated working at KPMG. He was doing deal advisory. And so we would meet, we'd go to lunch and we would talk about what if we start doing coin collection and start like just going door to door, collecting people's coins. <laughs> <laughs> just crazy kind of whatever. Or we could go to Coinstar and we could make like a G a week. <laughs> doing coin star stuff door to door coin star <laughs> <laughs> and so when the escape room thing came up it kept um, checking the boxes like the more yeah. diligence you did the better <laughs> the opportunity seemed and we uh, we looked at some lease spaces in dallas and none of them made sense the acquisition that we did to get into it is there was a escape room business in europe that i got in touch with and asked them if I could buy all of their plans and designs and basically their operating playbook on how to build these escape rooms. So we had no idea how to do it. They were the top rated escape room in their country that I found them on TripAdvisor and I hit them up and I said, can I pay you five grand to have a license to use all of your designs and your operational playbook in the USA? And They're like, oh, I love yeah. that. That's a genius idea. So you found a successful business overseas and reached out to them to kind of build something similar in the US. In a place uh, that they had no desire to go. And so for yeah. them, it's like five grand of found money. Nice. Wow. And for us, it helped bridge the gap on everything that we needed to know, like on how you do make a stupid puzzle, like unlock a door 
across the room, right? We've never done any of that. It's all super simple, low voltage electrical engineering stuff, but we didn't know how to do any of that stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. and so it just continuing to bridge the gap on the knowledge gap on how to actually get this thing done. And then at some point we just decided that in order for this to really work, we were going to need to quit our jobs to do it. We were living in Dallas and the location was going to be in Utah. We basically quit. And then we gave ourselves two months to get the first room dialed. And it took longer. I mean, it was a lot harder than we thought. And it was a lot more expensive than we thought. And there were a lot of issues that came up along the way. But what were the financial semantics behind that? Like, did you have investor money? Did you have savings? Did you have to have communications like with family, wives, things like that? Or <laughs> no, we didn't talk to our wives. We just did it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> My wife was super supportive because she knew that I was miserable practicing law. We pulled together 200 grand between the three partners. So we had 200 grand to get the thing built and the initial escape room, model. the initial escape room business. Yeah. We felt like with 200 grand, we could get a couple experiences up and running and then we could kind of self-fund. We ended up over budget. And so we ended up getting like a $50,000 loan to kind of bridge the gap in order to... Was that like another investor, like equity or debt? Did you get like... It was, just, it was high interest debt. It was 20%, 20% debt. So you went to a loan shark. <laughs> yeah, we went to the mafia, basically. Why get... not do like SBA loan or a bank loan or... We didn't know, like, I honestly didn't know about any of that stuff. You know what I mean? Like back in 2015, I'm sure people were doing it. It just, I don't think it was as popular as like entrepreneurship through acquisitions and like. Well, that's just because we're in this sub-community bubble. I still think 99% totally. of people don't even know what a SBA. I didn't know what an SBA loan was until I sold this business that I'd started to a buyer who bought it with the SBA, right? That was my first yeah. The SBA needs like a way better marketer and way more funding. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so anyway, that's how we got it. That's how we kind of seeded the business was with 200 grand plus a $50,000 loan to- And did you take any course or anything like that to learn how to negotiate with the landlord or set up insurance or set up a business? Or how did you just figure it out? Like you just went for it? Or Back then, bro, it was the school of the hard knocks. You know what I mean? We made all <laughs> of the mistakes one by one individually. We had tons of issues. I wish that I could have taken a course on, I had done lease work as a lawyer, but it's different when you're a lawyer working for- Sears negotiating leases with Westfield Mall versus yeah. like doing a 7,000 square foot office space that you're going to actually have to pay the lease on. And so one of our first experience was a prison bus. And the reason why we did a prison bus was because you found we, it on the side of the road. <laughs> we, yeah, we found a school bus on the side of the road because we couldn't get a certificate of occupancy in our space. And so the city wouldn't let us open our escape room business until we did some stuff and we needed money quickly because <laughs> we'd all quit our jobs and oh we needed a place to have a room experience. So we bought a school bus, turned it into a prison bus. So that way we could operate and take revenue without having a certificate of occupancy with, with the city. <laughs> wow. You know, we made every mistake in the book. To even navigate that though, like certificate of occupancy, things like that. Did you have a lawyer? Oh, and you were a lawyer. Obviously there's specialties and stuff like that. Did you 
have anybody or did you Google everything? How did you know you needed a certificate of insurance, for example, or occupancy? Oh, the city lets you know. That's the thing. I think we made the mistake. I was a lawyer from a big school, from a big firm. My brother had worked at Goldman Sachs and then the other guy had worked at KPMG. We had like good resumes on paper, but we had never actually gotten down and dirty. And so I think- It's like book smart versus street smart almost. We all felt like we were really smart. We didn't need anybody. And we probably could have saved ourselves a lot of pain and hassle by getting specialists along the way who knew what they were doing at their specific sub niche instead of us. Like, I mean, I know more about building codes that exist and like how framing goes and low voltage restrictions. Cause we were just like, we'll just learn it all because we're smart. Yeah. Like how hard- Has your propensity how, as a lawyer kind of allowed you to at least want to be able to do the research for it? But I guess did that help or did that kind of almost hinder you because you tried I think to do it was, everything? I think, yeah, it was more of a cheap mindset of I'm just going to do it cheap. I'm going to be do this as cheaply as possible and I'm not going to pay somebody. I'm not going to pay an expert. Do you think that ended up costing you longer in the long term? It cost me a lot of- gray hair and like balding, you know? Yeah. What would be your advice now if you could go back and do it again? I mean, you had a successful exit and we'll talk about that in terms of just for people looking to do their first deal. What is that advice or so that you kind of give them now having gone through it? I think the way that I do acquisitions now is if it's not an area that I have a lot of experience in, I pay an expert to give me their opinion on the business or try to make the expert a partner in the business to help. And so I think now I have much more of a mindset of trying to own smaller pieces of capital stacks than I did like back seven or eight years ago. I'd rather own less and have great partners that can drive momentum and contribute in their unique way than owning 100% or 50% or 75% of something that I have to know everything about every aspect of the business. Yeah, yeah, well, that makes sense. Okay. I know you had a very interesting methodology of, okay, you just went off of trends to be able to find what business you wanted to get into. How would you recommend people finding businesses? Like, is it like a biz by sell? Is it a broker? Is it like go locally? What's kind of the preference or kind of the recommendation there? I selfishly recommend that they build a profile on DealMaven. So that Mm -hmm. way they can be found by a seller and connect with other people in the acquisition community. I think brokers can be a source of deal flow. Like the guys that I know that are in private equity are pretty prolific in the acquisition space. Most of them find deals that are kind of direct inbound deals from sellers that are interested in selling their business. I think the hard part about somebody who's in a job that's trying to compete is you really have to be known, like you have to spend time and you have to get yourself known as best you can in the community for something, you know, publishing content and being out there and publishing on LinkedIn and all those things. Like, I guess like you mentioned, for some people that are working a job, if they can't do it on LinkedIn, because they don't want to be known, there's places like DealMaven where they can kind of set up a profile. And then on that, is that something that they can actually get a business through or how does that help? It's basically an advanced network for 
kind of buyers, right? For Mavens or how does it work? So there's the Mavens who build profiles and connect with other Mavens. And then there are sellers and entrepreneurs that are looking for either selling their business, selling part of their business or selling all of their business. And so there's a two-sided marketplace aspect to DealMaven. The last business that I bought, I found off of DealMaven as someone that put their business for sale. They were trying to sell it themselves and they matched with me on DealMaven and it worked and I <laughs> bought it. No, um, no. So there's a chance of getting bought through Raleigh for DealMaven. <laughs> yeah, I'm, so I'm a good but okay, so that's like the legitimate kind of connection between buyers and sellers now. Okay, yeah, yeah. got it, got it. And is there a certain way that, for example, the interactions occur, reaching out to people, connecting with them, how that kind of helps bridge some of the gap of, like you said, meeting in person or nowadays, like how to actually reach the right people to communicate with? The thing that we did on Deal Maven is... If you go to most marketplaces like biz buy sell, you have sellers that are trying to sell and then buyers that are invisible to the sellers and unless they submit an inquiry and start a deal process. The problem with that setup on something like biz buy sell is 50% of deals fall apart after signing an LOI and 90% of businesses that are ever listed on a marketplace with a broker never sell and so the problem that exists in most marketplace dynamics is the seller is kind of putting all of their information out and there's very little that you know about the buyer. And so from a sell side perspective, as someone who has sold a business, it's very hard to know where to marshal resources to focus on potential acquirers of businesses because you nice. can't tell. You can't tell the difference between this email address and this other email address in terms of what are you actually looking for? What's your deal range? Do you have the money? Why do you want to buy this style of business? Where do you live? All of these things. Yeah. My first business, right? It was an escape room business and it was acquired by a guy who was in the haunted house business. And so it was like, when I finally connected with him after connecting with 40 other potential acquirers, some of them are just like, bullshit. I want to acquire your thing. I have no money. Will you do hundred percent seller financing or like people that are sitting in their college. You had no real way to vet the buyer before you actually talk to them. Yeah. So it just takes conversations, conversations. You hope to send them an NDA and like, you hope that's a big enough deterrent for them to not send it back. So that way you don't send the financials. And so like the first part of most processes are very seller focused, right? Where it's like the seller is trying to create barriers so that way buyers that aren't interested just kind of go away because you don't know who's interesting and who's not interesting yeah and yeah when i talked to the buyer that who ultimately bought that business it made automatic sense that he could be a potential buyer he was already in the business he already had an escape room business we were kind of like quasi competitors in the market right he was local to the market he knew what he was looking at, right? Like that acquisition made total sense once we started getting down to it. And so DealMaven recreates that by really showing who the buyers are. So that way you can get to deals faster. And so it's built for people that are true, true buyers <laughs> that are looking to really get a deal done, not tire kick. And so that's why it's built the way that it is. So that way deals happen faster and deals close faster because the buyer side of the network is vetted 
and they're serious about getting a deal done. Nice, nice. So if I'm a buyer, if I now want to buy a business, where do I go? You go to dealmaven.io. Okay, nice, nice. You go to dealmaven.io and then you click buy and you set up your profile and then you can talk to a profile specialist and you put in your criteria and then the deals just start happening. Love it, love it. All right, <laughs> we'll put the link in the description. Yeah, we will. Create your profile. I like it. Do deals get rich? Do deals get rich.